I was in 8th grade at the time. Our project was about gun violence and the causes and effects of it and how we were able to help students who were struggling with mental health issues. We sent out student surveys to the whole school and we found out that most of the school had adults who they can trust but there was still a small percentage who didn't have anyone to talk to. I was in 11th grade and I am currently a senior. Our research project was stress as related to online school and how people were um, adapting to their online classes. So for many years, I've been working with uh, school districts, individual schools, teachers, and students, and also students at Rutgers, Rutgers uh, student teachers, on projects centering young people's investigation of civic issues, sometimes called youth participatory action research or critical civic research, projects where young people conduct their own original research on issues and concerns that are of importance to them. So for over a decade, I've worked with clubs and classrooms in at least 20 different schools, helping teachers and student teachers lead these projects with kids on a whole panoply of student-selected topics. Some examples uh, include gender roles, drug use, stealing, racism at school, immigration, school lunches, school uniforms. You know, I've spent a lot of time with uh, the data from this project, transcripts of these sessions and interviews with the kids and interviews with educators. And what gelled in my mind was that civic learning and engagement is not something that adults give to kids. It's really a property that folks are generating together. In this podcast, you'll hear from a variety of administrators, teachers, researchers, and students about their participation in civic action research clubs and classes. You'll notice a variety of projects and perspectives, but the messiness of the process still accomplishes the goals of developing community, investigating critical concerns, and creating change together. So they wanted to create these clubs to break the language barriers in the middle school, so we immediately moved to that. They wanted an opportunity to speak with our athletic director because they basically said, we cannot play sports because your coaches are not, they don't speak Spanish and that's kind of a hindrance. That was mm -hmm. eye for us. Um, it's so funny. I just had an interview two weeks ago with a assistant athletic director and he actually spoke on that, which means that that message is still resounded throughout the mm -hmm. community. Mm -hmm. We worked through it as well in my senior year. I'm now a sophomore in college, so it's been a while. Mm -hmm. When we first started the project, I was a part of kind of like the initial group. Mr. Monahan just kind of fetched this idea of BIPAR to us. Um, and we were kind of just thinking of some things to do. And we landed, it's funny now looking back at it, but we kind of landed between two topics. So it was school spirit and experiences that ELL students went through their school. We kind of had a little argument about it, about which one was more important. And I can say that myself, I kind of overlooked just ELL student experiences. Not that it was not important, but I didn't think it was that big of a deal. But with the research we conducted, it was kind of shocking. And John and James kind of took the lead on that. So I guess I'll just let them explain that part of it. Mm -hmm. We found answers through like student surveys, where we got over 200 responses from ELL classes. Hmm. We conducted interviews with students, as well as teachers who taught ELL classes or who coach different teams in New Brunswick. And we were just able to get general ideas of 
what the situation was in New Brunswick regarding the ELL population in New Brunswick High School, as well as individual mm-hmm. accounts and more specific thoughts on what was going on. Like Edlin said, we found there were some surprising results that made us all realize like this was a bigger issue than any of us thought. And there was a lot of underlying discrimination and almost racism within our own school. Well, I did this in New Brunswick High School and John and I were part of the data recovery team. And so once we disseminated this survey and once we conducted these interviews, we were able to get a much better sense of what exactly was the case in our school. Once we synthesized it, every time we spoke to the school board, once we spoke to them and we showed them the stats, you'd see in all their faces, they were incredibly surprised hmm. by what the numbers told. What did the numbers tell the you? The numbers told us that ELL students were severely separated from the majority of the school. Our stats told us that only 9.4% of students in ELL played a sport, which is 19 out of 233 students, which was astounding to us at the Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. So you took that information to the school board, you said, and, and they were really surprised by the findings. And then what ended up happening after that? We took a lot of quantitative and qualitative data. Like John and James said, there were a lot of numbers that played into it. And then we also just interviewed students and their experiences. And it was a little gut-wrenching just how to see how they felt. So the goal was always to just see who was part of the school and had a sense of belonging. But after, you know, interviewing students and teachers and coaches, the reality was kind of heartbreaking. So we did present to the board and we decided to start at our middle school. So go on and present to parents of ELO students regular students um, and teachers as well, just so we could start children off young and try to build a sense of pride and just belonging before they went off into that high school. Mm -hmm. We were finding that there's a lower number of ELL students graduating compared to the other students who spoke English regularly. There's a larger number of ELL students who are chronically absent. Uh, Things like this that as James said, the disconnect between ELL students and other students was having a negative effect on their experience in class and in school, as well as extracurricular activities. And as Edelin said, we wanted to target the middle school as a point in which we should help reinforce positive values and relationships between ELL students and the general student body, because that was where a lot of these social interactions were being developed, there were certain terms that unbeknownst to us was very derogatory. I don't think we knew that this was pervasive in our community. Hmm. Uh, What was telling to me is that even in the conversations with a group of high school students, that they actually demonstrated to us that this was not just a high school thing or a New Brunswick thing. They actually felt all of these feelings outside in the community. We talk about intersectionality. It was impacting them on so many different levels. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we continue to put them in the forefront. Like when we do scheduling now, we make sure that our English language learners and our special education populations are scheduled first, not last, not to fill in the puzzle. It became part of the language that, that's the common language among all educated community members in New Brunswick. It's now becoming part of a common practice and expectation. Mm-hmm. 
is become part of even our assessments and how we assess students. But to, to do all of that and seeing that reducing and redefining the predictability of who succeeds and who fails, that is an example of how the students' words, their position, their work has now seeped into normalized goals within the district. To say that we had people on the fence who were resistant, we did, but it wasn't so much that they, many of them didn't want to do it, but didn't know the outcome. So this was just a, a, a great example of how it transformed not just our policies, what was on paper, so to speak, but our thinking and our practice overall. So what I would recommend is that there's somebody who is, is that role in the district, not for the purpose of censoring, not for the purpose of diluting, but that person may have to have meetings before the meetings, before people have an opportunity to hear from the students. There may need to be some conversations with other folks around mm -hmm. sensitive matters to say, listen, this is going to come up. I don't want you to take it personally. I don't want you to be caught off guard. This is from our students. Our role or goal is not to attack anyone, but it's to come together to see how we can mm -hmm. resolve it. So I would recommend for those listening that you have someone in the district who can facilitate and help navigate those, those back conversations because we don't want our kids to be put on the mm -hmm. defensive. And so it's important for someone to have that role to, to run ahead and to prepare the way for them so that when they go, they can go with clarity and confidence and it will be received in the spirit mm -hmm. in which it's mm -hmm. being given. When we finally just got to present this to the board and then to parents, I think it was sort of shocking to them. You could hear like the oohs and ahs, I guess, in the audience. We had a goal to just like, Again, start off in the middle school. Something that was kind of shocking to them and shocking to me as well is that during research, we found out that out of the 100% of yellow language learners, only about 65 of them, 64, graduated high school. And out of those 64%, only 22 even pursued a post-secondary education. So it was shocking to say the least. It was a very proud feeling because administration doesn't always listen to us. And to get them to not just listen, but to really take our advice that the students could not mentally handle it, as well as the educators, I think it really meant a lot. You know, mental health is often so overlooked when it comes to teenagers and even with adults because it's like, oh, well, you know, how will you ever get prepared for the real world if you can't handle this now? So I think it was really nice to see students finally like actually be heard by adults. I feel like that in like a big public school, it may seem kind of hard to like stand out or actually make a difference. But with this club, it kind of proved to me that I actually can. In this podcast, you heard from Dr. Beth Rubin from Rutgers University, Drs. Marnie McCoy, Lenox Small, and Aubrey Johnson from New Brunswick Public Schools and New Jersey middle and high school students. Thank you.